This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card. One of the great pleasures in life is traveling, especially when there's great food waiting at your destination. When months of planning, preparation, and exploration all culminate into one perfect bite, there's nothing better. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin-A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. We are thrilled to be with you here tonight at the Museum of Science. This is our very first live event, so you guys are going to be the ones to suffer through any mistakes we make. But do not worry, we have snacks. The thing is, you cannot eat them right yet. You have to sit tight, keep your hands off the chocolate. You have to earn it. Tonight, you are going to get to watch fungi and bacteria interact on a sliver of cheese as you eat it. The cheese is alive! <laughs> and you're eating it. As if that's not enough, we are going to introduce you to the new kale. It's kelp. But wait, you're thinking, I'm not at the Boston Museum of Science. Unless by random chance you are, in which case, check out the butterfly garden and the sound stair. But a lot of you were there with us. We had our first live event this spring at the Museum of Science. It was great fun. And we wanted to share one of the highlights with you in this special show. So that thing we said about the new kale being kelp? That's what today's show is about. I'm Nicola Twilley. And I'm Cynthia Graber. And you're listening to Gastropod, the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history. This episode, you'll hear from Bren Smith. He is a seaweed superstar. We did our first ever live event on May 4th at the Museum of Science in Boston, like we said. And we had chocolate, cheese tastings. You guys are going to have to take care of that part yourselves. Feel free to press pause while you gather supplies. But for our main course that evening, we focused on a topic we've explored before. But there's so much going on with seaweed these days that we had plenty new to offer. We started with a brief refresher on how the seaweed industry got rebooted in New England. So dim the lights, curtain raise, here we go. So we know you guys are all super ahead of the curve, very thoughtful, very conscious eaters. So we wanted to go vegetarian for the main course. I hope that's all right with everyone. Um, and you know, kale, kale is a little 2013 at this point. Kelp is the new kale. So until recently, you might have only seen kelp, you know, wrapping sushi. But those vegetables that grow in the sea, they're good for a lot more than just wrapping rice. I mean, and forget about Asia entirely. Seaweed is actually a native New England food that we somehow forgot about. But not anymore. It's coming back. That's right. New England is in the middle of a seaweed boom. And we visited its epicenter in Stamford, Connecticut. <laughs> Charlie Yarish is 
fairy godfather to millions of tiny little kelp growing offshore from New York City to Maine. So Charlie is an expert in seaweed biology, and he wanted to help New England fishermen grow kelp, and he wanted them to beat Asian seaweed farmers. He knew we couldn't compete on price, so he wanted to come up with a way to dramatically speed up the seaweed farming process. Charlie turned his lab into a combination seaweed brothel and nursery. <laughs> he starts by harvesting reproductive organs from wild seaweed. He brings them back to the lab, puts them in an oversized beaker, and then he starts setting the mood. And it turns the lights down, the water's not too hot, not too cold, and the food is just perfect. And then, most importantly, he puts the love tank on a wobble board and he recreates the motion of the ocean. And the kelp get it on. Cover your ears, children, that is the sound of seaweed sex. <laughs> Charlie gets those seaweed so happy that they're able to grow to the age to the size that the fishermen are able to seed them back in the water in one-third the time it would take them in the wild. That is two months faster. And Charlie is not stopping with just uh, kelp. He has an entire lab full of different species of baby seaweed, um, and he's figuring out how to farm them all looks kind of like a lava lamp showroom. It's really pretty. <laughs> it is really pretty. Bren, will you come up and join us? So, Bren Smith is one of the beneficiaries of Charlie's Seaweed Magic. He runs a farm called Thimble Island Ocean Farm, and he runs a nonprofit called Greenwave. And he just won the Buckminster Fuller Challenge Award for Ecological Design. Now, Bren does not sit in the lab watching seaweed having sex. He's out. Damn <laughs> Wrong job. <laughs> he's a clean-minded individual, and he's out on the ocean growing the kelp instead, and then processing it, and then getting it to the grocery stores or chefs. And then in his spare time, he is advising other would-be kelp farmers on how to get started. OK, so Bren. It doesn't really seem like there's a very clear career path to seaweed farmer. Mm -hmm. How'd you get into kelp? Well, first of all, it's, it's, it's as embarrassing as you can imagine. I mean, I grew up, you know, beating seals and chasing tuna. And now I'm a freaking arugula farmer. I, I have to hang in totally different bars. It's, just, it's awful. But um, so I, w I was born and raised in Newfoundland. I dropped out of high school when I was 14. And... Um, Headed out to sea. I fished the Grand Banks, George's Banks, and ended up in the Bering Sea. And, um, you know, this was the height of industrial fishing. So we were tearing up entire ecosystems with our trawls. I've thrown tens of thousands of pounds of dead bycatch back in the sea. And most of the fish we were catching was going to McDonald's. So I was a kid, like 15, 16, working 30-hour shifts in one of the most destructive forms of food production on the planet, producing some of the lowest quality unhealthy food on the planet. But while I was there, the cod stocks crashed when I was back home, and thousands of fishermen thrown out of work, and that was a real wake-up call for a whole generation of us, and it kind of created a split. The captains of industry, they just wanted to, um, uh, they were thinking ten, 10 years out, and they wanted to fish the last fish. We all wanted to die on our boats one day. We were thinking 50 years. And so we, we went on a search for, uh, for sustainability, and I went to the aquaculture farms in northern Canada, supposed to be the answer to overfishing. It was disgusting. Um, uh, polluting local waterways, pesticides, antibiotics, everything we know. Now, we used to say on the farms, we're growing neither fish nor food. And in a way, what we did with aquaculture then was create these Iowa pig farms at sea. So I kept looking, 
and then eventually ended up in Long Island Sound. And the last little piece of this is I was, I was an oyster farmer, which was kind of boring too, and <laughs> did that for about seven years. And then the storms hit. So Hurricane Irene, Hurricane Sandy came in, wiped out my farm two years in a row, 90% of crop, lost most of my gear. And that's when um, uh, I had to completely rethink both who I was as a fisherman, who I was as a farmer, and what is it going to mean to grow food in the oceans in this new era of climate change. So you have this really intriguing term to describe what you do, 3D farming. Can you tell us what a what a 3D farm looks like, how it works. So imagine an underwater uh, garden. So we have these chains on the side, our hurricane-proof uh, anchors. And then parallel to the surface, we grow our kelp, and it grows, grows vertically down. And next to the kelp, we've got lantern nets with scallops. And then mussels in these mussel socks, also next. And then below, we have oyster cages that sit on the seafloor, and then down in the mud, uh, we have our clams. And the whole idea is to try to figure out how many different kinds of species can we grow in 20 acres. But species um, uh, that restore rather than deplete the environment. And so this is what you see underwater. Mm. What are you seeing on the surface? So I love it because there's nothing to see. It's like the worst tour in the world. I bring people out and they're like, and then we go home. Um, but they pay 500 bucks. Um, but so there's really not much to see, and that's a good thing. Our oceans are these beautiful, pristine places, and we need to keep them that way. Because we're underwater, um, anybody can fish, boat, swim on our farms. So we're, we're protecting rather than privatizing our commons. And we have very small footprints. My farm used to be 100 acres. Now it's down to 20 acres, and I grow way more food than ever before. We can produce about 250,000 shellfish and 10 to 30 tons of uh, uh, kelp per acre. So you got into this and you wanted to do something that you thought was sustainable and you just said you really wanted to restore the ocean. So how does kelp in particular, how does it help with that? Well, it's this incredible agent of sustainability. I always say, you know, it's not my job to save the seas, but rather figure out how the seas can save us. Because kelp, Mother Nature developed thousands of years, millions of years ago, um, that and it actually mitigates our harm. So it soaks up nitrogen, which is the cause of dead zones. It soaks up five times more carbon than land-based plants. It's called the sequoia of the sea. The New Yorker actually just recently called it the culinary equivalent of the electric car. And then our farms also function as artificial reef systems and storm surge protectors. So over 150 species come to hide, eat, and thrive because there's just all this stuff going on there. And my, this area used to be a barren patch of ocean, and now it's a thriving ecosystem. And then the last piece is we grow zero input food. So it requires no fresh water, no fertilizer, no feed, no arid land, making it hands down the most form, a sustainable form of food produ production on the planet. And in the era of climate change, as water prices go up, feed prices, land prices, it's also going to be the most affordable food on the planet. We will be eating kelp, whether we like it or not, because it's zero input food. The question is, is it going to be beautiful and delicious, or is it going to be like being force-fed cod liver oil? <laughs> going to be also, beautiful. Yeah. So forget insects. This really sounds like the food of the future. Boo insects. <laughs> <laughs> Deep fried, they're fine. but. You know, kelp is better. And, but it's also sort of a rediscovery of the past. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of kelp in the Americas? Yeah, so 
there's an entire Western culinary history um, of seaweeds that's completely forgotten, mainly because industrial food it just changed our seafood plate and pushed everything off, and you know just gave us cod and salmon and a couple fish. So. Italians, three generations back, used to use um, seaweeds all the time in their cooking. There's the kelp highway all up and down South, South America, and in the digs they find people were eating all sorts of seaweeds back then. Um, there's in Peru, I was just in Peru, and in the, in, the, in the specialty restaurants they're all eating seaweeds. And I'm from Newfoundland, all of our crappy food was trucked in or boated in. The best vegetables around were seaweeds. And so now, I have to admit, I, I really want to taste this yeah. wonder food. Cynthia always has to eat everything we report on. It's Trouble totally is, it's true. disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bren, really, though, yeah. what does your seaweed taste like? So, kelp is a great gateway drug to de seaweeds. And the reason is it's extremely mild tasting. Well, first, when you cook it, you throw it in some water, and it turns this bright green. Right, which is a great aesthetic experience for, for cooks. And then we turn it into noodles very often. And you get a, uh, it has a very neutral flavor, so it sauces very well. And the mouthfeel, um, it, it keeps an al dente sort of slight uh, crunch to it, which is really good. And that'll, that'll stay, um, you can freeze it up to five years and you still get that great texture. What are some dishes that you've seen chefs make with it? Sure, so um, uh, we, we're now working with chefs that don't do seafood because this isn't seafood, this is a vegetable, right? So you, you think of it wrapped around a piece of salmon, right? You can't, or like in some miso soup. Brooks Headley in New York City, who used to be a punk rock musician and a, and a five-star pastry chef who doesn't know anything about seafood, made barbecue kelp noodles with breadcrumbs and parsnips. Delicious, right? It's a vegetable, right? So you come in a totally different way. We just did an event with Google and it was a half beef um, half kelp burger. And it both had that deep umami taste, but it also had the bright green stripes through it. And just a side note, um, that we can, f um, we can feed cattle, chicken, goats, kelp. They've been eating it actually for hundreds of years, again, before industrial food changed their appetites, um, um, their habits. Um, and you get a 90% reduction in methane output, stunning. And you get this incredible, delicious, umami-packed, slightly salty beef. It's like a French salt marsh beef. Wow. Kelp stops the farts. Yeah. So we really wanted to have some of Bren's kelp here for you tonight to try, right? You want to try it after hearing that. But his last season's harvest is completely sold out already. But Bren, it's harvest season right now. Yeah. How's it going? Um, I, I, I smell like seaweed. I came in because I was on the boat uh, this morning. It's, um, kelp is so fast growing that it's a nightmare. We seed it in November, which is past uh, post-hurricane season. And then it's one of the, one of the fastest growing plants in the world. So we, we have you know, 12, 15 foot plants, probably 40, 50 tons of it that need to come out in a really short period of time. So we're just, we, we have our processing plant going and we're pulling day and night shifts. But we're getting 12-foot noodles. So we have this noodle machine that cuts, the, cuts it into noodles, and you get literally a 12-foot. So imagine, like, on a dish. It's like that Disney, it's like that Disney movie, you know? It's like, I, I'm hungry. Um, I, I just one of the things is, this is about kelp, but it's not. I say kelp is a gateway drug because there are 10,000 edible plants in the sea. This is the beginning of, like, a 100-year journey of zero-input foods. And imagine being a chef 
and realizing there are arugulas, spinaches, tomatoes, rice, corn that you've never seen and never tasted before. It's, um, one of my chefs said it's daunting and exciting at the same time. Thank you, Bren. <laughs> I'm kind of blown away myself. <laughs> So everybody, look out. Keep your eye out for seaweed in your local grocery stores and your local restaurants. Yeah, try it and tell us what you think. So at this point in the show, Bren took a seat and we moved on to dessert. But when it came time for the Q&A, Bren was mobbed. Everyone had a question for him. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. You know that feeling when you try a new food for the first time and your mouth experiences these brand new flavors and sensations? It's like, wow, I didn't even know a food could do that. This happened to me when I went on this amazing trip to the northern tip of Queensland in Australia. We were so far north that we were off the country's electrical grid. And we were staying on a banana farm where they grew dozens and dozens of different kinds of bananas. In the morning, I woke up to a basket full of some of the most bananas bananas you can imagine. Red ones that were super soft and sweet like raspberries, and small finger-sized ones that were sort of floral, and even blue ones that tasted exactly like vanilla ice cream. Life's too short to pass up extraordinary experiences. And if you're ready to take your next big food adventure, go there with Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Question time. Question time. Us, them, whatever you want. Hi. Um, I have a question for Brent Smith. Yeah, right. I'm over here. Right over there. <laughs> okay, so I'm taking marine biology this semester, and we actually talked a lot about what you presented on. Um, and we also talked a lot about marine protected areas and how it needs to be a balance between large enough to protect the organisms but small enough to um, allow fishermen to get a good catch. And I was wondering what you thought was, like, how is the, what's the right way to find the perfect size where there are enough larvae and fish, like, leaving the protected area? but enough um, that are protected. Absolutely. I mean, I'd actually come at it a little differently. So I say to a lot of the ocean conservationists that they're not environmentalists anymore. And I say that because you could set aside the entire ocean as a conservation zone, and it's still going to die. Right? One out of four marine species are supposed to go extinct right? because of climate change. Unless you have engines of restoration in the ocean, um, uh, you're not addressing the climate crisis, let alone food and you know, uh, food security and jobs and things like that. So my vision is what I call a Napa Valley of Meroir, where you have small-scale farms dotting our coastline, surrounded by conservation zones. We have seafood hubs embedded in poor communities um, that need the jobs, a hatchery, a ring of institutional buyers, the universities, the, the uh, uh, large companies, and then a ring of social entrepreneurs. And that's a reef. Like, I think of it as a green wave reef. And then you replicate that every 200 miles up and down your uh, coast. Um, there's also the possibility, and we're working on this, I'm betting our farms into... Um, 
wind farms. So why just harvest wind when you can do food, fuel, fertilizers in those same spaces and just use those small industrialized, um, well not small, but, but more efficiently. <laughs> Hi, uh, this question is for Bren. Um, I really liked your presentation, and I found that map that you had with the seaweed and the scallops and the fish really interesting. But I was wondering if you could talk more about um, the seafood animals in that map. Like, what, what is the role they ha have in your farming? Do they interact with each other? Do they have some sort of role in the kelp farming? Yeah, so um, all the... You know, the oysters filter up to 50 gallons of water a day, also pulling nitrogen out. Um, uh, mussels actually have, uh, 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 do a lot of carbon work, and they, it's a great lean protein packed full of omega-3s. So every one of them are their own agent, agents of restoration. And we're actually trying to figure out what does the whole farm do as a whole. What's fascinating is we get different growth rates on one side of the farm to the other, and that means we're soaking up so much um, uh, nitrogen that it's actually affecting uh, growth. And that's a really good thing because we have way too much nitrogen uh, in our ocean. And then all of our crops are, are also um, spawning, right? So what we try to do is under-harvest and over-produce so that all of our shellfish and all of our seaweeds are feeding the local reef system and it gets bigger and larger and more productive and we're only pulling out a small section in order to run our business. Our next question is back here. Hi, uh, I have a kelp question. <laughs> so is kelp, uh, are the kelp noodles mainstream or is it only like Grant Ashots and like those chefs who are using them? Like is this something that a regular person can go and buy? Yeah, so our problem right now is, um, so I thought it was gonna take forever to get people to eat this stuff, right? <laughs> um, uh, really, I thought it would take 10 years and um, the exact opposite happened. So our demand is through the roof. We don't have enough farmers. Um, we could be, just in my area, we could be doing a mil, like one to three million pounds of kelp. Um, and we have, we've got over 150 restaurants that want, that have put in orders. And then huge institutional buyers like the Unilevers, the Googles, things like that. And then all the, the universities and the elementary schools are really, uh, want it because that's a, because the way you attract kids now is good food, right? That's, it wouldn't work with me, but that, um, <laughs> So um, we're selling out. Everything is uh, pre-ordered. We're going to have some for sale on our website on greenwave.org at the end of this harvest season, so basically in about three weeks. All of that money goes back into Greenwave to train farmers. We've got 14 farms coming online. I've got an 11th generation fisherman now growing kelp. And being made fun of every day. But, <laughs> but, uh, um, uh, so we're racing to solve that problem, and then the supply will... We'll catch up soon. Yeah, and look for our sea shine. We're developing kelp, kelp moonshine, which is going to be <laughs> delicious. <laughs> Still a fisherman. <laughs> yeah. Next question over here. Uh, this question kind of piggybacks off of that in terms of uh, just you know what you foresee in terms of growth, um, and then also you mentioned that you have a farm in Long Island Sound, I think, and. Uh, you know, where does it matter geographically where these farms are? are there are certain, you know, water t conditions or, you know, depths that have to do with where you're going to put something. And then also, how do you deal with the ocean conservation, like, side of things? And, uh, you know, how do you go about purchasing 20 acres of ocean to yeah. farm? Yeah. There's Thank a, you. 
a lot of questions, um, <laughs> which is great. Um, but I dropped out of high school. Um, so, um, uh, I mean, one point everybody you know says, "What about dirty water?" Right? And it's a it's a great question. We have two kinds of farms. One we um, grow in in pristine waters, and uh, shellfish and seaweeds grown in the U.S. are the most regulated food in the country. It's the most traceable. Our water is tested every week. You know, we just have to because it's a live product. And, um, the oysters govern that regulatory regime. And that's a good thing. I mean, you wish your arugula was treated like our, uh, uh, our crops. But then we farm in polluted area. We actually do pollution farming. So in the Bronx and places like that, just to soak up heavy metals, just to soak up nitrogen and carbon, and that doesn't go into the food system. That can actually go into the biofuel system. The White House just um, hired a seaweed czar. <laughs> yeah, it's getting weird. It's getting. No, it's, it's getting weird out there. Um, um, and and um, that can either not go in the food system or it can just stay in the water. Right? And our farmers should be rewarded for those ecosystem services. So what we're pulling out of the water, whether it's nitrogen trading or carbon trading, every other jerk is polluting. We're, we're actually doing good things, and we should be uh, rewarded for that. And I'll just say real quick on the leases. The leases are, are um, it's 25 bucks an acre to, to, to uh, own a lease. It's stunning, right? It's just so you, with $20,000... 20 acres in a boat, you can start your own farm first year. That's why we won BFI, because it's cheap, it's replicable. I call it the nail salon model. Minimal inputs, minimal skills, and you suddenly have agency, and you can be uh, a farmer. But you don't own your land. You own the right to grow shellfish and seaweed in that area. Anybody can do anything else. That's why they can boat, fish, you can commercially fish, you can lobster. We own the process, not the property. And that's so important in order to keep our oceans, you know, the commons. We're not going to be pe- people, um, you know, building big, giant farms at sea and then blocking people out. Seriously, my partner Tim left the evening wanting to invest in a seaweed farm. Brenna's like a magician. You just end up thinking that seaweed will solve so many problems, and it tastes awesome. Plus, my favorite fact of the evening, which Bren told us just before we went on stage... Turns out when they blanch the kelp strands in boiling water, you can skim off the slime and... Get this, he actually sells that slime to a California company that makes natural lube. Kelp really can solve every problem. Clean the water, feed the world, and liven up the bedroom. Thanks so much to Bren Smith of Thimble Island Ocean Farm. And also, of course, thanks to the folks at the Boston Museum of Science who invited us to perform. We'll be back there next spring, so keep your eye out for tickets. Last time tickets sold out in two seconds. I'm hardly even exaggerating. So you might want to sign up for our email list for advance notice. You can add your name at gastropod.com. In three weeks, we'll be back with a big news story. It's about something that sounds simple, counting fish in the ocean. But if you stop to think about it, it seems almost impossible. How do we do it? And why does it matter? To find out, we investigate how we count fish today and the high-tech tools of tomorrow, including drones. That's amazing. Check back in three weeks for more maritime adventures.
This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. You, dear listener, already know about the transformative power of food. You're probably thinking about food right now, aren't you? Look, we get it. Sometimes a craving is more than a craving. It's a calling that you have to indulge, even if it takes you thousands of miles to get there. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card, made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more.